Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Thank you very much, Raymond. Could I invite you to turn with me, please, to Mark's Gospel, Chapter 1. While you're turning to the the place, just to say thank you, Raymond, to you for your welcome and for the invitation here from Tom. It's a very humbling thing to stand in front of any congregation with God's Word, but even more so when uh, there are many missionaries who are my teachers or should be my teachers. So I do hope we'll get some good out of this as we come to God's Word. Uh, You also mentioned... Raymond weathering the weather, I think it was your little poem at the start. Well, I've weathered the weather, but my notes haven't. And the ink has spread all over, and there's a congealed mess on my page. So if I'm even more confused than normal, it's because it's the weather's fault, not mine. So there we are. Let's come to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Let me read a verse from the book of Genesis, which I'm not going to ask you to turn to. It's a single verse. We will refer back to that today. Genesis 3 and verse 15. The words of God to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now we come to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, reading a short section beginning at verse 9. Mark 1 verse 9, this is God's word. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And at once the spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now, after John was put in prison, uh, he went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's take a moment to pray as we come to God's word. Father, we simply ask now that your Holy Spirit would preside over our gathering together. And may the one who inspired your word be our teacher so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and the response of our lives would be pleasing in your sight. For your name's sake, amen. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. I'm sure we'll all agree that uh, most of us anyway, since childhood, we have loved a good story. I always love to hear stories. And maybe as children, we said to our mom and dad when we were going to bed, mom or dad, tell me a story before I go to sleep. And when we're adults, we still love a good story, whether it's a biography, a factual work, or a work of fiction, whether it's in cartoon or comic form, in a book or in a movie. Uh, Romances, like Romeo and Juliet, that tug at the heart, that sort of uh, story, or fantasies like Lord of the Ring that stimulate the imagination and help us think of other worlds, or murder mysteries. My wife's very fond of Lewis. Uh, taking over from Morse that challenge the mind and you're trying to work out uh, who done it, who was the culprit, uh, or thrillers like The Born Identity, which set the pulse racing. We all love a good story, and perhaps uh, that isn't the kind of story you like, but I'm sure you have your own 
favorite. And don't we apply tests to a story, whether it's a good one or not? First of all, is there a plot to it? Can we see where it's going, or does it just meander aimlessly? And does it have a good end? Does it come to a, a proper conclusion? And perhaps the reason that we have a real love for stories is because there is a great story behind our lives and behind the world that God made, and we're part of that story. And it's the greatest romance story ever told, as Charles Wesley described, but love divine, all loves excelling. The most daring rescue operation ever mounted. Uh, indeed, that's what the Bible word salvation actually means. And it's the greatest mystery, I think, ever uncovered. Paul calls it the mystery of the ages, a mystery that even angels longed to uh, unravel and look into. And the plot line of this story runs from Genesis through to Revelation. It's a story conceived in the mind of God. It's being worked out in history as it progresses towards its divinely appointed climax. But furthermore, it's an interactive story. It's one in which, by God's grace, you and I are invited to be involved in helping to further God's purposes towards their appointed end. And the title of this story, the name of it, it's the mission of God, or it's the gospel, because the gospel is that great story that runs from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. And so when we read Mark 1.15, where our Lord says the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news, we're very conscious that we're not at the start of the story at all. We're somewhere in the middle. The time has come for what? What, what is our Lord speaking about? Why, after all these centuries of waiting, does he begin by preaching about the kingdom of God. What kingdom? And to answer those questions, we really need to go back to the start of the story. And so this won't be quite a Bible reading this morning because we're going to jump back from Mark's gospel and then come back to it in our successive mornings, uh, God willing. But it's when we go to the first three chapters of the book of Genesis that we are given uh, if you like, the preface to the story. Three great th themes that interact all the way through. You will know that the story of Genesis begins with the creation, or to use the New Testament word, the cosmos, which means uh, an orderly or a harmonious world or a system. Uh, in creation we see, I think, perfectly expressed what we call the kingdom of God. A world in which God's rule and God's gracious reign is perfectly observed and perfectly displayed. A world of beauty and of harmony that brought glory to God and blessing to all creation. So that's really what the kingdom of God is. It's the reign of God. It's that sphere over which his rule is exercised and observed. And we see it perfectly in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But as you know, in chapter 3, we move from cosmos that beautiful orderly world to, to chaos. We see how Satan deceived Adam and Eve into rebellion, bringing catastrophe uh, on God's world and his relationship with his people, uh, a world that's alienated from its God-given purpose. There's a biological alienation. We're alienated from our bodies. That's why we suffer decay and disease and death. There's an intellectual alienation. We're alienated from the truth. That's why we exchange the truth of God for a lie and our understanding is darkened, as Paul puts it. 
we have a psychological alienation from ourselves. That's why we experience anxiety and guilt and fear. We're no longer at ease with ourselves as human beings. There's a sociological alienation from each other. That's why we have marriage breakdown and violence and racism and war and the like. And there's an ecological alienation from creation. That's why we have pests and diseases and pollution and erosion and global warming and so on. All of these things are hinted at in Genesis chapter 3. And all of these because of an underlying theological alienation, because we're alienated from God. Human beings here, we can see, have been plunged from membership of the kingdom of God into what the New Testament calls the reign of sin and death, the kingdom of darkness. So here from the very beginning, there is not one but two kingdoms. But the third great theme comes in Genesis 3, verse 15. We have the creation, we have the cosmos, or we have the chaos resulting from the fall. But here we have the promise of a redeemer. I will put enmity between you and the woman, says God, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Satan will not have the last word. Sin will not have the final say because a descendant of Eve will come and redeem the situation and reestablish the rule or the kingdom of God. But in the process of that redemption, the Redeemer will be bruised and Satan will be crushed. And so here, if you like, is the foreword or the preface to the whole story that follows on. And if you like, from Genesis 3 on, we're standing on tiptoe looking forward to the coming of the Redeemer. Now here's a question. I wonder what Old Testament believers looked forward to. I was reading the prayer letter from some friends who work among the Manovo peoples in uh, the Philippines and Mindanao, and they train their evangelists to teach the gospel chronologically. They start with Genesis, then the fall, then the promise of a redeemer, and they take them through the story and they don't know what's coming. I remember on one occasion having a number of Chinese students came to the church, and eventually they came to our home for some coffee, and it was meant to be a Bible study, but they had very little English so I had to try to explain the gospel to them in the simplest possible terms. I used the little book, Journey into Life, that many of you will be familiar with. And we started at the story of the creation. They'd never heard of the creation. When I asked them, did you ever think who made the world or how, they'd never thought of that question. Anyway, we, we, we dealt with the issue of, of creation, that behind this world there is a, a God who loves us and knows us and so on. And then we came to the fall, and I could see their faces fall. They hadn't known about that. Then the promise of the Redeemer, their faces lifted again. And then what men did to this Redeemer? They were absolutely devastated. I could see their faces fall. They talked to each other in their own language. They had never heard it before. So they were hearing the story looking forward. They didn't know what came next, of course, the resurrection. So to tell the story chronologically to those who have never heard it, it's a very exciting and a very thrilling thing. So what did these Old Testament believers expect as they looked forward? I want to suggest that they must have had a number of paradoxes or puzzles or enigmas in their mind as they looked because the picture is not altogether clear as you're looking forward. First of all, will this Redeemer be a human being or will the Redeemer be divine? There's the first dilemma they must have had because clearly here in Genesis 3, he will be of the seed of the woman. 
Genesis 22 of the seed of Abraham. Genesis 49 of the tribe of Judah. Judah. Second Samuel, he will be a son of David. So clearly this redeemer seems to be human. But then we read in Isaiah's prophecy, he will be one born of a virgin called Emmanuel, God with us. And he will be entitled the mighty God, the everlasting father. So what kind of person is this? And Psalm 2 seems to speak of one enthroned of heaven and, and God addressing his son. So it's a very confusing picture. Will he be divine or will he be human? And of course, it's only as that story develops that we come to realize that he will be both divine and human. He will be the God-man. But there's the first paradox they must have had. The second one is, what office will he fulfill? Because the Old Testament believer was familiar with at least three offices that they called anointed offices or the anointed one. And as you know, the term anointed one in the Hebrew is the word Messiah, or in, in the Greek of the New Testament, it's the word Christ. So when they're looking forward to the Christ or the Messiah, and that comes to be the, the term that, that he and I use for this coming one, he will be an anointed one, but which office will he fulfill? Will it be the anointed office of a, a prophet, because he was one of the anointed uh, leaders of the Old Testament, or of a priest, or of a king? The prophet spoke God's word to the people. The priest represented the people to God, and the king ruled the people under God. All were the anointed ones of the Old Testament. So which will the Redeemer fulfill? Well, according to Deuteronomy 18, we're looking forward there to one who is a prophet greater than Moses. So it seems that he will have a prophetic function. He will be a prophet. But Psalm 110 then anticipates a priest, not of the order of Aaron, that limited priesthood that didn't quite work, that temporary priesthood, but of the order of this strange character called Melchizedek, who will have this everlasting priesthood, who will, have, who will ever live to intercede for us. And so this, this Redeemer seems to be a priestly figure as well as a, a prophetic figure. And Zechariah points forward to a king who will come, who will establish his rule and rule over all the nations for all time, and paradoxically will come riding on a donkey. So which will the Redeemer be? Will he be a prophet, a priest, or a king? And again, we come to terms with the fact that this coming Redeemer will be all three. He will be a prophet, priest, and king, all in one person. The third d dilemma they must have had is what kind of person will he be? What kind of manner will he exercise his ministry with? Will he be one who is high and exalted or will he be a very humble and lowly person? Because certainly according to Daniel seven thirteen, he will be this glorious son of man who comes riding in the clouds, the one who enters the presence of the ancient of days and has given authority over all the nations. A glorious figure who comes in the clouds, this heavenly, magnificent figure. But yet Isaiah speaks of the servant of God who has no majesty that we are attracted to him, whose meek and lowly will not crush a bruised reed, will be despised and rejected and bruised for the sins of the people, led like a lamb to the slaughter, cut off from the living. How confusing that must have been. How could he be both the son of man this glorious figure, and yet this humble servant of God of Isaiah. And again, it's only as we come to the New Testament that we discover that he is not only the son of man who will come in the clouds in glory, but he is the son of man who will give his life a ransom for many. So he is both the glorious and the humble figure.
figure, the son of man and the suffering servant. The fourth dilemma that they may have had is what will this redeemer achieve? As you know, the Jews made much of their covenant, the covenant that God had made with them. They were a special people, and that was the basis of their whole temple worship and the whole priestly system. That was the very essence of what it meant to be of the people of God, to be a member of the covenant community. But how they must have been shocked when prophets like Jeremiah begin to hint at the fact that this covenant is, is no good. It's not working. It's not fulfilling the function. And there's a time coming, says Isaiah, when I will make a new covenant with my people. So will this redeemer, will he fulfill the covenant or will he abolish it? Now, what was wrong with this old covenant? Well, it required perfect obedience, for starters, which sinners could not offer. Secondly, it ratified an animal's blood, which could never take away the sins of human beings. And I suppose one might, uh, you know how it was when people came to the house, you just had a meal and the table was covered with dirty dishes and people come in and you didn't know what to do, so you cover it with a tablecloth. It's out of sight. And so it's okay to have your visitors in now. They can't see the, the dirt and the dirty dishes, but they have to be washed later on. And in many ways, the Old Testament covenant was of that kind. It covered over our sins, but it didn't wash them away. The washing needed to come later. So here was an inadequate covenant. But thirdly, it was an external covenant. It didn't change the hearts of men and women. It didn't cause them to love God and to love their neighbor. So now the Old Testament believer must come to terms with the fact that this covenant is only temporary. It's not the real thing. It's only the shadow of the real thing. They must look forward now to one who will keep God's law perfectly and will fulfill the full requirements of that covenant. And one who can say, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. One that will really work. And one who can baptize with the Holy Spirit and give a new heart, as Ezekiel says. And so they must come to terms with the fact that he will both fulfill and abolish this covenant on which they placed such great store. The fifth dilemma I think they must have had is, who will his people be? Will it be a narrow group or a broad group? The Jewish nation, of course, were very proud of themselves as the people of God. They believed that all God's purposes revolved around them, but in fact they had been chosen not for themselves, not for privilege, but for responsibility. They were called to be a light to the nations. They always had a missionary vocation, but they lost that missionary vocation. They looked in on themselves, and they thought they were God's favorites. And indeed, they began to despise the very nations to which they were meant to bear witness to God's grace. And so now they must come to terms with some shocking truths. The God-saving purposes are, on the one hand, much narrower than they supposed. Because it's not about Israel as a nation at all. But it's God's purpose is being worked out through a believing remnant of Israel. That's what Jeremiah 23 tells us. Ezekiel 36. It's a remnant within the people of Israel through whom God will work. And furthermore, that remnant are not included in the people of God because they're Jewish, not by heredity, but by new birth. Not by nationality, but through faith. That's why Paul can say in the New Testament, if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed, whether Jew or Greek. So it's a narrower group than they thought, but it's also a much broader group than they thought. Because the Israel of God, the church, will be an expanded Israel, drawn from all the nations of the world. 
And so Simeon can pray as he holds the infant Jesus in his arms, mine eyes have seen your salvation, a light to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. So God's people would be both a narrower and a broader group than they expected. And sixthly, the dilemma was, when will these things happen? When will this Redeemer come? Because the phrase had become familiar in Old Testament terms. They talked about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, this will happen. The day of the Lord, that will happen. Now, is that day of the Lord near or is it far? I grew up in, the, in Larne in the county Antrim coast. And sometimes I used to go down the coast and I would see artists sitting down on, on the, the beach. And they, they would have a canvas up and they would be painting a picture of the Antrim coast road. And in one and the same scene, they would have the foreground perhaps Ballygally Head or the Drains Bay, the arch, the, the black arch there at Drains Bay, that would be in the foreground. And then you would see perhaps Fairhead or Torhead in the middle distance. And then you would see the Scottish coast, the Mull of Kintyre, in the far distance. So here in the same scene, you have a foreground, you have a distant uh, middle ground, if you like, and then you have the far distance away on the horizon. And you come to realize that that's exactly how the prophets viewed the future. Sometimes in the same prophecy, they're speaking about events now, or events that will come in some distance, or events in the very final days uh, at, at, the, at the end of, of God's great saving purposes. So, for example, in Isaiah 13, the day of the Lord refers to two different things. At first, to the coming, imminent coming of Babylon to judge Israel. That's going to happen very soon. That's in the foreground. But it also speaks in the same prophecy of that day when the sun will turn dark and the universe will be shaken. That's the far distance. Or the familiar prophecy that we have in uh, the Acts of the Apostles when uh, Joel is quoted as anticipating the last days. When the Spirit will be poured out in all flesh, well, we know that happened in the day of Pentecost. But in that same prophecy, he speaks of that terrible day when the sun will turn to darkness and the moon to blood, the end of the age. So can you see that here in the same scene, you have prophecy of near, middle distance, and far horizon all in one go. How confusing that must have been for the Old Testament believer. The seventh and the final paradox that I'm going to mention. We'll keep on the eighth one for a, another morning. What will be the extent of this Redeemer's salvation? Because some of the prophecies seem to speak in spiritual terms and some speak in very materialistic terms. Clearly this Redeemer will deal with the spiritual problem of sin. His death will justify many, says Isaiah. He will impart a new heart through the gift of the Spirit, says Ezekiel. So there will be a spiritual restoration of human beings. But the salvation of God seems to be a much broader concept than just the sin problem, if you like. Because there's talk here of restoring the whole thing, the whole of creation. Healing all our diseases, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the dead will be raised. Establishing a new heavens and a new earth, Isaiah 65. The desert will blossom, the dry place will spring, the lion sit down with the lamb and men will beat their swords into plowshares. So paradise lost in Genesis 1 and 2 will be regained. The whole thing will be restored and renovated in the purposes of God. So God's salvation is far bigger than perhaps they would have thought or than that we think. It will be spiritual, social, 
ecological, the whole thing restored and renovated. All things in heaven and earth united again in Christ. As C.S. Lewis says, we shouldn't be super spiritual, no more spiritual than God himself. He said, God loves material things because he invented them. God intends to restore the whole thing, the physical, the spiritual, the lot. So let's draw some very simple conclusions from this morning's, uh, not quite a Bible reading, but a reflection of what it means, the kingdom of God. What is this kingdom that Jesus is speaking about? Well, it's the restoration of the rule of God in his world and in the whole cosmos. Let me suggest four or five simple applications. Number one, it should give us a tremendous confidence in the scriptures as the word of God. Because you can see here that this is one great story. It's not 66 books, if you like, though it is that, but it's one book. There are not many authors, though there are, of course, many authors, but there's one great author, the Holy Spirit. It's not about many personalities, though, in fact, there are many personalities, but it's about one great personality. The whole story centers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the key to the whole thing. It's all a great story about him. These speak of me, as he tells the disciples in Luke's gospel. So we see behind this Bible, these 66 books, one author, one story, the work of the Holy Spirit, God's great story of salvation. I think, secondly, it should give us a tremendous confidence in the sovereignty of God in the events of history. Because the things that were promised in the Old Testament actually happened. In the fullness of time, God did send forth his son. How those Old Testament believers must have wondered, has God forgotten? Did we misunderstand it? Will he ever send a redeemer? And they died without having seen the redeemer coming. They lived by faith. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Do you remember how Mary sang the song when she was told that she would bear the Savior? My soul magnifies the Lord. Why? Because he has remembered to be faithful to Abraham, just as he promised. All those promises of all the years were now being fulfilled in the coming of her son. And so we know for a fact uh, what they could only look forward to by faith, events that actually happened. And so for, for the same reason, we can look forward with the same confidence to those promises as yet unfilled. Let me just give you a, a lovely example, I think, from take the book of Daniel. Here's Nebuchadnezzar who sees a dream in Daniel 2. It's, it's recorded and eventually Daniel is brought in to uh, reveal the meaning of that dream. Do you remember what it was? It was a vision of this great statue with a golden head and a silver chest and was it an iron uh, thighs or whatever and then feet were made of clay and bronze and clay. Whatever it was, no matter what the metals were, there were four different parts to this great statue. And then a little stone that was not cut out by human hands appears in the vision and it smashes the statue and the whole thing collapses. And then the little stone begins to grow and grow and fill the whole earth. What a strange dream. But it's given to Daniel to understand the meaning of that dream. And so he speaks to Nebuchadnezzar and he, he reminds him that there will be four great kingdoms. Now Daniel is speaking possibly, what, 600, somewhere around that before Christ. 600 BC. Uh, there will be four great kingdoms, and then during that fourth great kingdom, a little stone will arise, a little kingdom, if you like, and that will supersede all the other kingdoms and fill the whole earth. 
Now, Daniel was looking forward. He didn't know really what his own vision probably meant. But we know from history, not from the Bible, but from history, we know that there was the great civilization of Babylon over which Nebuchadnezzar ruled. But it was followed by the Medes and the Persians under Darius. They came second. Then came the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And they were superseded by the Roman Empire, the fourth great kingdom. And then during that fourth great kingdom, a little stone, a little kingdom was born. A child was born. And that stone has grown and grown and today is growing to the ends of the earth and will keep on growing to the ends of the age, the kingdom of God. So we should have an absolute confidence in God's sovereignty over the events of history. Or at a more personal level, I think we need to have a confidence in the goodness of God in the perplexing circumstances of our lives. We read the stories of Joseph and Job and Jeremiah and Ruth and so on, and they went through very dark experiences. They couldn't see what God was doing. They couldn't see the end from the beginning. But they were sustained by this one thing, that their life was caught up in a bigger story, this bigger story of God working out his purposes for good. And so Joseph, only when he looked back, could say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and the saving of many people. God was at work through the circumstances of their lives, and he is through the circumstances of ours too. That's why Paul can say, we know that in all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Let me suggest just a couple of other simple applications. The fourth one is simply this, that we need a tremendous confidence in the relevance of the gospel in our so-called postmodern world. What's the great thing about postmodernism that they tell us? They tell us there is no story. Behind our world, there's just chance. There's no beginning, there's no end, there's no purpose, there's no direction, no plot, no plan. And yet the strange thing is that human beings cannot stop longing for meaning because God has made us for a purpose. That's how we are created. It's a very strange thing that the secular viewpoint tells us there's no meaning in our birth. It's just a chance event. Mindless explosion, mindless evolution, that's all we are. There's no purpose in our death, but somehow they try to give some meaning to the bit in between. And it doesn't work. We cannot have meaning in the middle bit if we can't have meaning in the beginning and the end. In the Republic of Ireland, there's been an epidemic of suicides among young people. And I was very struck by the report of the Irish college, I think, of psychiatry, I think it's called. They had a conference in, in Dublin some years ago. And they were debating this whole thing. Why is it young people feel the need when they've got university education, they have more money than ever, more to entertain them than ever? Why do they feel this need to, to, to lose any sense of meaning in their lives and to, to want to take their lives? Well, it was put down to drugs and alcohol and various other things. But they came back and revisited that conclusion some years later. And he said, we've come to realize that these things are not the causes. They're only the symptoms of the cause. It's a loss of meaning in the lives of our young people because they've been cut off, as they put it, from a religious view of life. We were made for a purpose. There is a story behind our lives, and the gospel is that great story. It tells us who we are and why we're here and what's gone wrong and how it can be put right and where we're going and only the Christian has the privilege of telling that story. This mystery of the ages has been unlocked 
in the gospel in the person of Jesus. And every time we share the gospel, we're helping people to understand this great story, God's saving purposes for his world and for their lives, and inviting them to come into that story, to belong to it, and to take part in it. The fifth is a very simple application, and that is that we should have a a very clear understanding of what the gospel actually is. It's a very clear message. It's about two ways to live. That's it. Nothing complicated about the gospel. From the fall onwards, humanity has been divided into two groups or two humanities. Those who choose the way of the serpent, the way of rebellion and self-will, are those who look by faith to God's Redeemer. We'll end up with Cain or with Abel, with Pharaoh or with Moses, with Saul or with David, with Belshazzar or with Daniel, with Herod or the wise men. We're in Adam or we're in Christ. And so though God is sovereign and his purposes will be fulfilled, he has given men and women this precious gift of freedom to choose, to repent and believe the good news, to choose life and not death, to choose blessing and not cursing, to choose the kingdom of God, to come under that kingly rule of Jesus and not the kingdom of this world. There is one more paradox. It's number eight, but we're going to leave that for another morning. So let's uh, conclude at that point. Let's pray together as we reflect upon these things. Let's pray. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.